0: What is up, internet friends? Welcome to Full Stack Whatever. I am your host, Michael Lomans, and today I am pleased to bring you a conversation with Dan Rubin. Dan has had a fascinating story so far, from the early days of the World Wide Web to being part of the early blogging scene to becoming a prolific photographer. We talk about his path towards design and the creative field, how he found his way onto the internet, and how he's always gravitated towards writing and teaching as a means to clarify his thinking. Here is episode 10, Sketching in Public. Hey, Dan. Thanks so much for taking the time. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be talking to you, not just from the design angle, but not just from the creative angle, but also because you've had a very varying career. and You've taken on many different creative pursuits. Most notably, I've seen you make a very big shift from design and creative direction into photography. For me, that's an interesting thing because I don't want to just have conversations with people that are quote unquote, in tech, I actually want to also have conversations with people that are like on the edges because I feel like we often have the same types of experiences, maybe in a different flavor. And yeah, so really excited to have you here. The first question that I always like to kick off with is, could you please introduce yourself and what got you into design? And for you, maybe it's a dual question, like what got you into design and what got you into photography?
1: it's certainly a dual question or maybe even more layers than that but first i'll answer the introduction my name is dan rubin i'm a designer and photographer it's the simplest way to describe all of the things that i do but of course for like for many of us that doesn't even scratch the surface i've been a designer as far as i'm aware since i was about 16. that's when i started actually practicing and learning which is very early i wasn't very good But my thought process that had existed obviously beforehand, the way I I approached problem solving as a child, and my interests that were already incredibly varied between engineering, art, music, lots of reading as well, especially because I was born in an era without the web and grew up primarily without the web. All of those interests came together at the right time when I discovered that there was this thing called design, that there was this, not career, because I was never career focused, like that word in quotes, but the idea of a job, a purpose that a person could have to apply themselves in that way and solve problems in this way, when that made itself apparent to me, I just instantly went, oh, well, that that makes sense. And the thing that really cracked it for me was typography. Without knowing it, I had been a fan of type and of the design of letters, but without having the words to describe that or the information to, to describe what that was. And when I was about sixteen, I discovered that was the word for it—that there were typeface designers. That this thing that I just started playing with that were called fonts, and I'd had a couple of years worth of playing with like desktop publishing, as it was called back then. I loved, I loved fonts. I didn't know any of the language around design. I didn't know really what to do, but I was feeling it out from about 14, 15 years old. And that was after my family got our first Mac when I was 12. So really that probably started it because I, I remember having all this page Maker as one of the first apps I played with at 12. So I keep telling myself and other people that I was 16 when I started designing, because I feel like that's when it all came together, but I was really playing with the tools and the concepts very naively from four years earlier. and discovering that there was this layer behind the typefaces, which is obvious once you find it out. But when you've never thought of it in those terms, you just imagine that those typefaces just appear out of nowhere. (laughs) And as a 16-year-old, it just blew my mind. It was like discovering the matrix. And it opened my eyes to the fact that everything in the world, even the tools that people who created things used, were all made by someone else. And I was from 12 to 14 or 15, I was also very into oils and watercolors. So I was learning color theory. I was learning perspective through, through painting. And it was the same kind of epiphany that all happened at the same time. It's, oh, the paints are made by someone. The paint brushes are made by someone. The canvas is not just something that you stretch over a piece of wood. And that's not how you make a canvas. The canvas itself is made by someone. Those pieces of wood are cut by someone. And for all of that to just pop into, in your head at the same time is this massive moment of awareness. And once you have that kind of epiphany, you can't switch it off. So like that is the moment when I feel like I became a designer because I understood at that moment that everything in the world that didn't come from nature was designed and that everything that didn't yet exist could be designed and that every problem that I came across could be solved in some way. And my opinion has never changed on that since.
0: So you were talking about PageMaker. I remember making a little video game magazine because I was playing some PlayStation games and a friend of mine at school, we were using Microsoft Publisher. It was just (laughs) a complete chaotic endeavor, but it was a really fun way to dig into it, even though you don't even know what you're doing specifically. What was the type of early work that you were doing? That's the kind of stuff
1: that I was working on. I was still heavily involved in Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. So I was, I was very involved as a youth leader in my troop and in other kind of organizations within the Scouts. And so I, I made newsletters for events. I remember having a small, like two or three person team for one weekend event when I was 16 or 17, where I literally ran this three issue newspaper. That had to be published on a tight schedule. We worked overnight on the Friday night to create what would be published for Saturday morning and then overnight on the Saturday night. It was really great because I didn't have any experience in how you would do that. So I went and got books on newspaper design and publishing and I read a bunch and went, okay, I think I can do that for a weekend. And so I was acting as a publisher. We printed that on 11 by 17 tabloid side sheets. Got some adult advisor, had an 11 by 17 laser printer that they loaned for the use. And I went to a proper print shop and had two color plates, I guess, made uh, that were tabloid on the specific sheet paper that I knew we could print you know, using the laser printer, but it would mean that the banner of this newspaper was properly printed, not laser printed, and it could have two colors on it. So I went through that whole thing and I didn't know anything, but was already clearly trying to create a process and live up to really high expectations and goals. And before that, I was doing paste-ups, a couple of friends and I and my brother had what we called the Fort Lauderdale Sub Club, because I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, just north of Miami. And we were fans of nuclear submarines, which at the time, you could go on if they visited Port Everglades, this main like cruise ship port. Here, I they thought would,
0: it was like a sandwich review. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no,
1: no. It, that would have been cool too. But this was, I still think, really cool because we could, we actually would yeah, go no, on sure. these nuclear subs when they came in to port. And this was like in a similar time period too to when the Hunt for Red October would have come out. as. And it was just, I was really into subs. And I still have a couple of copies of these paste up like two-page double-sided newsletter that then you can see where I went from just drawing things and drawing out the type and the headlines to then realizing I could do that with a computer in a very short period of time. And then I I was also heavily involved in in music which I still am, but I was a member of a chorus back then. I would design, you know, brochures and flyers and things for the for this men's chorus that I was singing in and I mean anything that I could find as an excuse to make things for a purpose I was doing. And it was a great way to just cut my teeth on skills that you could only learn by doing at that point. I wasn't going to school for, I wasn't going to university at 16 or anything like that, but I found all of these opportunities to just play. And it was a similar timeline. It was when I discovered the web, when it really started to become a thing. And I was really lucky that I got some access to it through a friend of my folks who ran a little web hosting company out of his backyard, like out of a shed, literally a shed. And I remember I was- in my, i was nearly 17 years old and he and his family were going away for a week and he knew i was pretty technically competent and he asked me if i could monitor his web hosting company while he was away meaning like every morning after swim practice i would just go over and sit in front of these this bank of computers and answer the phone if someone called with a problem and like i had a list a printed out list of a couple of the easy solutions which things to turn off and turn on again and I just surfed the web for a week and it blew my mind. And that's kind of where all my involvement in the web side of design started as well. So I was interested in tech. I was interested in design for print. I was interested in type and communication. And I'm just very lucky that it all happened that early.
0: Wow. That's really cool. I'm really enthused by this because the the way that I started explaining like why we're doing this is everyone's story is different. And this is the first time I've heard someone's meaningful exposure to the internet coming by the fact that they were helping support a local ISP, which I think is a really amazing way to get connected to it. Talk me through that initial experience of sitting there for the week and having access to the web, but then also like how it progressed. Like, Did you get home internet access? Like, How did you get your deeper connection with the web going?
1: I had my first email account when I was about 14, and that was uh, through the local library system. I still have that address. I couldn't tell you what it is. It's just a series of numbers, but the account still works. I was also very lucky that my family, we had a very benevolent neighbor who lived down the street because my brother and I were homeschooled, which is a completely separate story, but also very tied into the amount of time that I had to spend on these interests because they became things that that I didn't have to squeeze in. They ended up being like part of the curriculum, essentially, through my teens who lived on our street knew that we were homeschooled. That was a kind of a rare thing back then. And this one neighbor gave us our first Mac. Like when we had that Mac classic when I was 12, he had upgraded his computer and he knocked on our door and told our mother, he said, you know what? Your kids are great. They're really smart, but because they're not in school, they're not going to have access to computers and they need to because the world is changing. To have a benefactor like that who can give you very expensive hardware and some software to play with because he knew that we needed it, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere without having that access. And our parents being open enough to say, yeah, we'll accept this gift because we realize that it's important for our kids. So that four years later, I was very fluent in the Mac and I'd been getting familiar with the internet through the library and through this neighbor as well who was on the internet very early on. So mostly what I did was surf the web, looking at people's websites on all sorts of random topics. Most of them for me, were, they were history and art because that's what I was really into and some on music. And it just it absolutely blew my mind. The idea that I could get all of that information from all sorts of places around the world without leaving a chair, I, that was great. And I still think it's one of the best things about the web, that access and so that week also changed my life in a big way because I immediately went to my parents and said, I need a modem. And that's a big deal. No one had modems. If there was any talk about the internet and the web, it was scare tactics on the news about how it was like a place you shouldn't let your kids spend time. And my parents were able to trust, I guess, that there were there was something else happening there. And so I had a 14 baud modem. Our household did not have call waiting, which was good. Because I didn't get bumped off when I was using the single phone line, but we also had a single phone line. So I had to use the internet when my parents said I could, and there was a good chance that no one was going to be trying to call. So I had these little windows every day and I just started learning everything I could and gathering information. And sometime in the next kind of two or three years, I was already playing with HTML, and this was using tables, right? Because it's back then. And I would write it out by hand before typing it up and seeing if it worked in the browser, because for me, that was the only way I would know if I'd really internalized it. I didn't want to do trial and error. I wanted to say, mm-hmm. I'm looking at the code and I understand the code and it works exactly the way that I thought it would. And I saved that piece of paper as well. I think it was at a Kinko's. Then I just wrote it on the back of some scratch paper. So th- yeah, this is also a story of how old I am and how lucky I was to get access <laughs> at the time. No, Not in a weird way. It's just Some of these moments only happen for a brief period. Right. Where I could get access in that way that no one at schools did. If I'd been at high school, I wouldn't have had that access. And I learned that pretty quickly. By the time I was starting to take some college classes, I was already working. So I was doing part time college level stuff. But I had clients that were mostly in technology. My brother and I very early, like in our teens, were the only people who would service Macs in like, the South Florida area. So like, as soon as I had a driver's license and a car, I would be driving and doing like, house calls and going to certain businesses that had Macs because there was no other way to get them serviced. And that was paying the bills while I was learning more about design and we were trying to figure out what that route was going to look like. And so I started taking some classes, like university level classes in software and design And I was bored to tears because I was already so far ahead of them and there was no way to test out of them. Like I still look back at it now and the courses were so far behind. It wasn't funny and I knew it. So I just stopped taking them. I knew at that point as well that the structure that existed for teaching and learning wasn't always going to be the best route to learn what I wanted to learn and to practice what I wanted to practice. That had also been instilled in me by my mother and father because of being homeschooled and because of like the path that they had each taken But to have it proven on my own terms, in my own way, with my own interests, really set me up in a great way where I don't rule out any type of learning. Learning is great no matter where it's coming from. But you have to be able to evaluate for yourself whether the opportunity for learning is the right one for you. And if not, then just don't waste your time on it and go find another source.
0: That's such a unique story. And I'm really thankful that you just share that. So you found a way to figure out which were the right things to learn from collecting the ingredients for what was your education and kind of your formative years you were driving around repairing max which is like a whole other cool tangent we can probably go on because that sounds like a really interesting time what made it go from that to you i think in 2001 starting your website superfluous banter and then continuing to publish on that site for i think close to a decade
1: I remember when I started that, I felt like I was so behind, which is crazy. But I mean, that's just how our brains work, isn't it? I was way far ahead of so many people, especially with what the blog ended up being about, which was kind of this, you know, a lot of little satellite ideas and thoughts, but mostly around design and and web standards specifically. But when I started it, there were these other people who I was already reading their blogs and seeing what they were doing. And to me, I felt like I was late to the party. And I mean, I started, I think I was using movable type. Remember that? I actually still feel like the most fun I had with a CMS was with movable type. It was just, I know part of it was that it was all new and exciting, but it was actually just really good. And I remember feeling that whenever it went away and we also had to start using new things and you start using something new and you go, "Ah, it's just not as good. And nothing has ever felt as good as that felt. It's so a, it's a nice mixture of nostalgia and probably also accurate, but so that, yeah, that was 2001 that I started it. And like the four years prior to that were the years that I really threw myself at the web and I was just building things that were used practically because 1996, 97, I spent two years working as the assistant to the curator at a museum in South Florida that was being built. It opened in late 1997 and this museum was run by the Seminole tribe of Florida one of the native american tribes in Florida and i was really lucky that the curator who he was one of the experts in Seminole history and he was also one of my advisors and scouts so when he needed an assistant someone he could trust to do all sorts of things in the museum office while he was focused on getting this museum and all its exhibitions ready for opening he decided he would hire this like 18 year old kid who knew computers who knew design and who he had known for long enough that he trusted rather than hiring someone who had one or two degrees and was technically academically appropriate for the position. One of the key influences in my entire life, because one of the things that I learned in those two years, in addition to just having all sorts of practical experience and things to do where I was just trusted to do things and do things from transcribing civil war era documents to cataloging artifacts, to even just writing letters for him as thank yous to people who would donate things to the museum. But I wasn't like he wasn't dictating to me. He'd say, Hey, can you write a letter to to thank them for this? Because he trusted my language skills. So there were all sorts of autonomous experiences that I got to have there. But I also learned so much about curation. And curation has been a thread that has never left me since then in any of my work as a designer, as a creative director, as an art director, as even as a musician and especially as a photographer and doing things related to photography and storytelling, the just the core concepts that I learned back then have proven so important. After that, the museum opened and I needed to find other things to do and the web was becoming more of a thing. The web was really a thing now that people were paying attention to. It was where commerce was happening. It was really exciting. So I was designing for the web and I knew how to program. So I was right on the cusp of this whole idea of someone who was able to do both of these things. And I really just did all the front-end development and any of the back-end stuff because I couldn't find anyone else to do it. There was no one in Florida, South Florida who was doing this stuff. And in the early 2000s, I'd now been getting more and more clients. I'd been working with some agencies around South Florida. I was starting to have remote clients in 2000 and 2001. And things like blogging were picking up popularity. And I, just, I was now throwing myself fully at that world somewhere in there was when I discovered web standards, thanks to Zeldman, like many of us did at the time. And I, again, saw it, understood the rationalization behind it and went, yep, this is where I have to be. And just immediately changed everything I was doing to not only incorporate web standards into the process, but also try and be a proponent of it to my clients at first. And then when I started blogging, I realized that there was a way to just put that information out into the world. And that if I was putting it out there, it didn't matter whether it was good or not. I can't even, I don't even think I was thinking about is this good information. It was like, as long as it was accurate, if I was coming up with a nice hack that I could share or something that would maybe help someone, I understood that someone else might find it the same way as I found all of the resources that I was finding back then. And it just went from there. And it, like, it was a really good thing to be doing because it didn't have a purpose other than me sharing and giving me a playground. I had my own site, so I could do whatever I wanted with it and I could use it to. Experiment with design, experiment with front end, push the edges of, and the boundaries of what could be done, which sometimes I did and sometimes I just wrote on it. sometimes I put a lot of BS on it and you know that's that's what a playground needs to be. And it connected me with people like Doug Bowman, Dan Cedarholm, and DDA Hillhorst, who is a really good friend. DDA has gone on to do just the most incredible things in his career. and I think we'd met maybe 2003 or four whenever the the CSS Zen garden happened,
0: Oh, I remember that. Um, I still have that book somewhere. Dave Shea.
1: Yep. So Dave Shea was running that and I contributed a design to it. And one of the other people who contributed a design to the Zen Garden was D.D.A. Hillhorst. And he and I connected through that because I was at the point where my brother and I had just started our small little agency. We'd been running it for a few years, just doing it, the two of us. And I was ready to take on bigger projects and be more of a design director, creative director. And also just expand on what the agency could do. I didn't want everything to just be limited by my own skills. The people I looked up to were people who had teams who relied on people with other skill sets. So I knew that I had to do that as well. And DDA started guest blogging on Superfluous Banter as well, because I don't think he had a blog at the time. So there are were, there were still a lot of like great archived posts that, that show his early writing and thinking. I mean, he went the career path and did great things and will continue to do great things, I'm sure super, super smart guy. So if you're listening, DDA, hello. I hope you're well. (laughs) I think he's (laughs) not living in the States anymore. But yeah, blogging introduced me to a load of people. It connected me in the way that the web does at its best, connected me with a lot of people who are in different places with similar interests. Like blogging was just putting my ideas out there. And that's a huge lesson that still stands today. All the best things that have happened to me, I think have come because of me writing something. And I'm saying that kind of hold myself accountable because I haven't written enough in the last decade. Maybe I've done a lot of other things. There's still a lot of output, but it's something I'm directing myself back to over the last couple of years. Is just more writing first for me and then eventually for other people, because it's just, you can't really beat it as a way of having to prove that you understand what you're thinking and what your opinion is.
0: I want to push on that a little bit because one of the things that I started thinking about between the lines is that Yes, there is the clarity of writing and I think that's like a motif throughout all those years. But it sounds to me that having your own playground or like applying your voice to a piece of material, that's the that seems to be the through line from like age 14 into that decade of blogging effectively. I don't know if that's true if that makes any sense. Oh, it does. Um,
1: I'm nodding at you over Zoom. Great. And I know
0: the the reason why I think of this is because you may not have been writing a lot in the last decade, but I do think that you use a different medium and the, the medium of photography to find your way to put your voice on top of so many different projects, efforts, endeavors, et cetera.
1: Oh, yeah. And and that's that's kind of my follow-on to that, that in the last decade that I haven't been like writing as much, I've written a few things that I'm really proud of, and they were all written for other publications rather than my own playground and i think there's a there is a, an important thread like you pointed out of playing and outputting but but having your own playground constantly sketching and sketching in public is i think an important aspect of that but it's not required Right, a lot of us sketch in public now, I was sketching in public with ideas with the blog, right? And some of them were just like embarrassingly bad and have now been archived to, so that the internet doesn't have to put up with some of the, okay. the like whiny early 20s Dan. But it's also okay because what that meant was I felt safe enough to play. I felt safe enough to put myself out there in a way that I wasn't worried about what people would think. And I try to do that still now, like the idea of just playing in an un- unfiltered way whether that's for me or anyone else, the most important thing is that you're doing it and you're getting ideas out if they're on paper or if they're in visual form, if they're sketches, if it's paintings, if it's photography. I I run into a lot of people since I teach. I always end up teaching in whatever I do. I've taught music. I've taught design. I've taught photography. I like teaching as a way of learning because it it forces me to prove what I know or what I don't know, but it also opens me up. To how a lot of different people might process the same information and that in turn teaches me more. It allows me to see things in a different way. It opens me to questions that I wouldn't have had myself and then that's going to expand my understanding. And when I teach photography, especially to beginners, one of the things that I hear a lot is people saying, I don't know what to take pictures of. And I think that's the same thing for writers. Well, I don't know what to write about. So why can why would I write It's well, this idea that you have to know before you've done it is unfortunate. And it, I think it spreads throughout Western society for sure. And it holds people back from doing things. How the heck are you supposed to know something that you don't know? How the heck are you supposed to know how to do something that you haven't even practiced once or twice? And how are you supposed to know how to do something when you've only practiced it twice or 10 times or 50 times? My performance background on stage as a singer has also taught me a lot about that because you can rehearse without being in front of an audience hundreds of times, but the only way to rehearse what it feels like to be on stage with the lights, with the curtain opening, and with that audience responding to you or not is to do it on stage to them. And if you think about it in those terms, that like there are two different types of rehearsal in this world. One is the rehearsal of publishing, the rehearsal in public, and the other is the rehearsal that we do on our own, in our own head or just in private. And they're both incredibly important. And I think that it's only easy or easier to rehearse in public if you rehearse enough on your own. So you get the muscle memory of one thing down, the thing you're trying to do, and then you go and get the new muscle memory of how it feels to do it in front of people and how to deal with their responses and their rejections or their acceptance.
0: It's giving me a lot of the Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face energy. <laughs>
1: well, it is. It's, yeah. And we forget that though. And it's, I think people, we all, myself included, can get, feel trapped by that. And that's one of the unfortunate aspects of how much information there is now is that when I was in my teens and most of my twenties, even, I didn't feel pressure for putting things out in public. And maybe part of that is that I'd been on stage as a singer since I was 12. This is easier than getting up on stage in front of 2000 people. <laughs> like I, I'm, I don't see my audience when I'm blogging. That's, this is super easy. I just have to look at stats obsessively for the next 24 hours. Um, refreshing mint. Yeah. Remember mint Sean Inman's yeah. wonderful little, yeah. again, again, best favorite stats thing. Google analytics has never come close to the joy of using mint, man. That just kind well, of sums actually, up. what, Everything that's wrong with technology, right? Like everything that's wrong with technology, it's just, it's all nostalgia. Everything was much more interesting and much more fun before it became big and templatized.
0: (laughs) No, it's funny that you say that because what you're making me think of is I do think that we're in an age right now where we've had this wave of centralization in large platforms and both platforms from like the Facebook, Instagram, YouTube sense as well as platforms from the Android iOS sense we've gone through this like really big wave and one of the the biggest things that I still hold against Facebook is they had the single best centralized events platform to do anything with if you had to get people together well in, in the largest sense of the word it could be officially because like you're a artist and you're trying to get people to come to your show it could also be getting 50 friends to come to a party But they just threw that away because it was all about eyeballs. It wasn't about utility. And now we're beyond that. The Facebook platform, especially in the U.S., is starting to atrophy. Instagram is probably seeing that same behavior. I don't have the numbers, of course, on that. But what that means is that we need alternatives. And needing alternatives means that there are things like Partiful and Luma that are like new events websites. There are also new places where information needs to be gathered. It shouldn't just be the big platforms plus Stack Overflow, and some people that know how to SEO their shit on Google, it should actually be a more distributed, more productive realm that can show you what the top 5% of information is on the web now that it's so convoluted and filled with stuff. And so I'm very hopeful that we are going to see an era that is much more people self-hosting again, self-publishing, or at least hosting with something i just checked out the website superfluous banter again and i found that it's online but it's running on some very simple wordpress theme that is undesigned very intentionally so to just have the information still there Mm -hmm. and i think that's what we also need to get back to right this yes we are we all own like making sure that this little website stays alive that this information stays out there that it stays accessible
1: well, that's um, something that 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 is is still very important to me. That it, like aside, as I said, from archiving certain like just embarrassing things from my twenties that I would have blogged, and they just have no value whatsoever. It's just like I was having a bad week or whatever, and I like I don't need to have that lasting forever. But the information. I feel it's my responsibility to keep it online, right? We all miss GeoCities and everything of its ilk. Like I remember putting things on GeoCities. I have no idea what anymore because it doesn't exist. And things like Angel Fire and what all of the free hosting that was available was key to Dan as in his teens who couldn't afford to pay for hosting, couldn't run my own server. I was lucky to have a modem, but it gave me a, again a playground in public that I could put stuff up and I could look at and I knew it was out there and it was that was the only thing that was important. It was on a server somewhere and anyone in the world could see it. And that was enough for me because that was cool. I couldn't do that with a newsletter I'd printed out. And it was in a way, it was the same. Like I think about MySpace, I think about MySpace, not a lot, but just enough because the fact that you could hack those profiles to personalize them that's one of the things we've lost. Like, I'm really curious mm-hmm. about who's developing the next GeoCities, which was not a blogging platform; it was just web hosting, but it had its own persona to it as a playground. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't just a boring web host. It was it, somehow it become something more because of how people used it. We've got Squarespace, we've got Wix, we've got a million different template-based build your site systems that all make the web look even more the same than it did before they came along and don't teach people anything about how to make things for the web because they're so locked down and restricted, which is both great and not great, depending on what you're trying to do. And I'm saying this as someone who I was very lucky that when Doug Bowman and Stop Design redesigned Blogger, I was one of the people asked to design one of the templates for it. So, and which Mm. people still use, which blows my mind because they don't just use it because even with all the iterations Blogger has gone through, you can still tweak the template code. So I see my templates, like my little four color variations, and I see people using it in weird and f- rather fucked up ways, but like beautifully so, right? <laughs> and I imagine if we could customize our Instagram profiles, if we could hack them on iOS somehow, if they gave us just enough control, and the same for Facebook, and the same. And I know that's not how product managers and design managers at platforms think. But that's part of the problem is that we've gone up this ramp of bigger, more amorphous, everyone just gets the same thing so we can focus on the experience rather than like all the frills. But the frills are what make everything human. And I agree with you. We are going to get into this, into another era. The web is still very nascent, right? Apps are still babies. Mobile apps are babies compared to the web. The web is like a baby compared to computers. Computing is a baby compared to electronics and so on and so forth. We've still got a long way to go and I think it'll get better, but it really frustrates me that I think that's why a lot of what we experience with technology now is quite boring. It's not interesting and it's why people are hunting for other sources of interesting. Sometimes those are things that are analog. Sometimes it's just people inventing something new on the web. I think it's going to push people to things that they have more control over like podcasts, right? I think that's a. It's also why we've had the rise of YouTube. Certainly there are patterns, but people can do whatever they want to in that, inside that frame and they can edit however they want. They can do the audio however they want, the lighting, like they have full control over the thing that you're paying attention to. And That's really important. So would people do more for their YouTube profiles if you could MySpace them? 100%. You know people would just obsess over that. And I hope we get back to that point. I hope someone creates a platform that is about play or that doesn't restrict play. It doesn't even have to be about play. But I think in the interim, that's why we're getting all these different avenues of expression, which is great, Mm. right? What people are doing with podcasts in one way is a bit templatized. We have a lot of podcasts that are very NPR-esque and that's not a surprise because that's how we learn. We mimic, we see our high watermark and we try to move towards it. And once you get towards it, then you start to figure out your own avenue. Even this podcast, the way you described it to me is about in comparison to there are a lot of podcasts and interviews which do X and I don't want to do that. I want to do it this way. And that's great. And the more things that we can have in tech that encourage that, that provide a sandbox for people to do their own thing and have imaginations to to get bored, not just to get distracted, the better off we'll be in in tech.
0: And as humans. I think it also has to do with the the creative tools, right? The tools that we are given to do the work with. Over time, we're getting tools that commoditize a lot of the things that we're already used to, but we're also getting tools that through this commoditization, we get kind of pushed into the next level of evolution. Like I think Instagram had that happen very specifically because... It did more than Flickr to get your photography out there in a way. And that was probably purely based on the feed model and following tab and the ability to find friends through friends and having those viral mechanisms that Flickr really didn't have. But then beyond that, the photography part really got stuck for a bit, right? And so then because it was a larger platform, it was more about lowest common denominator sharing and it melted into this new realm of things have to be rough to be authentic and it has to mostly be a short form video and then etc etc. But in the meantime, one of the reasons why I'm able to do even this podcast is because I use the script or Descript, script however they want to say it, even on their team's page, their employees say it differently. Maybe it's both. It's like how bi weekly means both twice a week and once every two weeks. <laughs> um, but but the thing about this like product is whatever we're recording i'm going to put it together in logic to make sure that all the levels are right and then i'm going to throw it into the script and it's going to do speech to text and that's how i edit and i run through every single episode and it takes a couple of hours i don't just use a smash take away all the ums and ahs kind of stuff i really go through it and for me it's like both recording this and giving a space and a stage to this is really important to me but then also being able to run through it again and listen to the whole conversation and almost think of it as this like narrative and this thing that is written down or this little story that we're telling together and the ability to edit it and tighten it up was impossible to do. I mean, the pre-podcast days, you were working with Brian Veloso <laughs> on a podcast, right? And it's, well, at the time, you were looking at waveforms and you were cutting waveforms. Mm-hmm. And the, the lack of visibility into that, it's like using MS Paint versus Photoshop versus now Figma, right? There is this evolution of the tool that allows you to do much more like grandiose structured things. It also like then limits your flexibility and creativity in certain ways, but that's just like part of the evolution.
1: I think that's the constant push and pull of our tools, right? The tools will always advance in some way. And we respond to those advancements in ways that change the output. And sometimes that's makes the output better. Sometimes it, it doesn't. And, but that's a kind of constant ebb and flow, I think. And it's also why, some people push back on using the new tools. I'm still a person who's more comfortable in Photoshop for screen design than tools like Figma. Mm. I love what Figma does. It blows my mind how quick it is, because Photoshop will never be described as quick by anyone. But <laughs> but it also feel I feel like it's channeling me into a certain type of output. And I know you can. I've also seen people do magical, crazy, nutso, so photorealistic illustration in Figma too. So I know that's not the case. It's not limited, but all the tools will result in a certain type of use of that tool because of of how it's intended to work and how you can hack around those intents. And it's great. There's nothing wrong with using an older tool if that's what allows you to get the work done, even though it seems like a lot of people want to argue otherwise. The reality is that the more tools we have, the better, because some of those tools will be the gateway for someone new a tool like Figma might be the reason that a ton of people have become interface designers who wouldn't have if Figma didn't exist and that's how i look at photography as well like all the new tools like the smartphone has been a gateway drug for so many people into creativity and sometimes that's creativity just for the sake of it for themselves sometimes it's for uh, for art and sometimes it has led to people becoming very successful commercial photographers because they picked up a smartphone because someone told them they needed to be on Instagram, right? And so all of Mm -hmm. these new things, this is where I sit as a technologist at the same time. I love technology. I love what it can be and what it can bring us and a lot of what it has brought us. But I also acknowledge that there are massive problems with how we just continually add things and how we expect ourselves to adapt. We're good at adapting, but if all we're spending our time on is adapting, then we're not actually making and we're not actually becoming experts in the thing. And there's a, especially in the world of tech, and I include the design for tech hardware and software in that umbrella. There's a lot of pressure to constantly adapt your skill set, adapt your knowledge of tools And if you're doing that, you're getting good at adapting. You're not getting good at building things for other people. And we lose sight on it of that rather. And it's been something that I started to drift away, not fully, but need something else than design and tech like between 10 and 13 years ago, because I was seeing a lot of that, I was seeing the discussion drift from getting closer in the late two thousands to more people and conferences and articles talking about why designers needed to understand accessibility and why we needed, you know, like this continued push and effort to make things better for the people who were using what we built. And the discussion was shifting from that to frameworks and tools that made our lives as people who design and develop easier and better and how we could do things more efficiently. And I didn't like that conversation then. And I don't like that conversation now, because if that becomes the primary form of, discussion of the primary kind of category of topic within an industry, then we're doing things wrong because it, it's not that it shouldn't be discussed. It just shouldn't be the primary discussion topic when we're making things for other people should be the other people, the people we're doing this for in service of. And I think that's why we've gotten to where we are with tech. It's not just tech. Tech is, a, is too broad a category, right? But we aren't focused on the humans at the core of it enough. And we all know that but the drivers don't acknowledge that or it's just the people in charge ultimately get to say which priorities we have and what we need to focus Mm -hmm. on. And I think if, especially in some of the biggest companies on the planet that are making tech, if there was a focus from the top down on the people it was made for and not how we're making it, then that would trickle down. That would be what all the managers understood. And It would be like all right well we don't have to think this year about changing frameworks or like that's something we can discuss but it's not going to be a priority because we have to focus on making our product the best we can for people and in a way it's good that i felt that tension 10 12 14 years ago because it led me to pushing into photography which is something i only picked up you asked this question at the top of our conversation and i skirted it because i knew it had to come later just on the timeline. I didn't pick up a camera in a way that felt to me like it could be a creative tool until 2007. So I was basically 30 years old, which is very late compared to anyone else I know who has a camera and who's used it in a kind of professional capacity. Not I, There are plenty of people who, who have picked it up even later than me in that way, but the people I know and have run into in the last decade and change all found it in their teens or their early 20s or when they were at college mm-hmm. or whatever and and I don't I still don't understand why I didn't I spent my entire life from when I was 12 and started doing oil painting I was putting things in rectangles <laughs> why a yeah. camera didn't make sense to me i I'll never quite understand I knew people who were photographers my dad always had a camera on him but it just, it, I think I probably, especially in the film era, I would have looked at it and gone, well, I, I don't understand how any of that works. And because there was no one around to explain it to me and no one I knew who I could ask, it, it just didn't seem apparent that there was any avenue for me to find out more about it. And I was anyway too busy with all these other cool tools and things that I was trying. So when I finally got sure. into it, it was something I needed. So 2007, I wasn't tired of what what tech was becoming yet. I was still very much interested in it, but I discovered it through people I knew in tech again. So everything good that I feel like I have, except for music, I got into in a completely different avenue, but everything professional that I've done has come through getting that computer at 12, being interested and curious, getting on to the internet, sharing, blogging, connecting with people, and just always being curious and following those threads. And that includes the people that I met who were into photography. So Jason Santa Maria was one of them who blogged about a Polaroid SX-70. This was after Polaroid, shortly after Polaroid had announced they were discontinuing their film. And I hadn't consciously seen this camera before in my life. And I saw this picture of this beautiful folding brown and chrome, beautiful, just thing. I said beautiful twice, and I'll say it again. It was one of the most stunning pieces of product design I think I'd ever seen. It looked like a sculpture. And I thought, oh, wow, I've got to have one of those for my shelf. And I should probably buy it while the film still exists so I can put a few packs through and tell my grandkids that I shot Polaroid film. And that's exactly what it was FOMO, basically, that that made me buy one of these beautiful objects. And and Tom Watson was another person that I'd met, another designer in tech who I'd met and been friends with who was also really deeply into shooting Polaroids. And between the two of them, I don't think I would have discovered photography if not for them having this love for the Polaroid and sharing that love and putting it on Flickr and on their blogs. I got this camera and the analogness of it and the fact that I could use it and make beautiful things to me, which by the way, many of my original two or three packs of Polaroids are still on my Flickr account, which I still maintain and pay. I pay for Flickr Pro because even though I don't use Flickr, I haven't touched it really since Instagram came along and I didn't use it much before. I love the fact that it's still around and I'll pay money every year to make sure that like I'm contributing to help keep it around. But uh, that's what got me into it. it was this analog tool that was a beautiful object that I thought I would never use after the first couple of packs. And what it did was exactly what it became a design lesson for me because it, it blew me away because I'd had cameras before, but never connected with them artistically instantly. No pun intended. I was creating things that looked and felt like art to me. And I, didn't, I needed to know why that happened. And when I dug into it, I realized that's exactly what Edwin Land designed the camera in the film to do. And I still think to that day that how genius is that, is that even 30 plus years, 35 plus years after that camera was introduced, it was still doing exactly what he designed it to do. I will forever be thankful for him for bringing that into the world. It made me realize that I needed to learn more about photography and about cameras as a designer. I never thought I'd become a photographer at that point. I was mm-hmm. just curious about what can I learn? Because I was starting to get a bit tired of designing things that didn't exist. And I know a lot of people who design for tech feel that way if it's software. I wanted. I started in design as a print designer and I'd been designing for like 15 years almost making things that existed in ones and zeros and in the ether. And I was feeling the pull for wanting to do things that were tangible again. So that was another draw for me. And so I spent the next like three, four years just playing with cameras, getting a lot of film cameras, getting into digital cameras, understanding how they work on a functional level, how they made me feel, getting to know other photographers who were both designers and not. And then Instagram came along. And I think in those years, those kind of three years from 2007 through 2010, when Instagram came into existence... In that period of time, I was also getting progressively more disillusioned with the world of tech, the side of it that I was involved with, I was speaking at more and more conferences, and I was meeting more and more people who were less interested in making the world a better place and communicating the things that existed on it better for the people who were using things on the web. And I was meeting more and more people at these events who were really interested in how they could triple their income by building things for the web more efficiently. And it was... I know that's a narrow way of looking at it, but it was something I was being exposed to more and more, rather than the other end of the pendulum, which I'd spent m- my career up to that point in, which was the altruistic—the world of people who mm-hmm. were making a living, but making a living through trying to do the best they possibly could for their clients, but also for their clients, customers, and users. And and this disillusionment just meant I I, I hid in photography. And then I had the opportunity to beta test Instagram before it launched because another friend of mine, Patrick Haney, who was another designer, was friends somehow with one or both of the co-founders. And he was a beta tester and they were like 20 or 30, maybe 40 people on Instagram at that time, a couple of months before it launched. And he told Mike or Kevin or both, he said, he said, oh, you should get Dan on here because he also knows what to do with a camera, but he's a great designer and he'll give you good feedback and blah, blah, blah. And as someone who never used Flickr, really, like I used it, but I didn't obsess over it. Immediately, Instagram was a thing that for whatever reason, and I can reverse engineer some of the reasons, but it felt like something I wanted to do all the time. I wanted to share. I think it was because it was at the beginning, it was only about publishing. You had to take a picture inside the app, filter it and share it or throw it away. So it's a very binary flow in that initial iteration. And I loved that. I loved that. I just had to commit. I either had to commit to it being out in the world or commit to it disappearing forever. And there was something wonderfully freeing about not having any more branches on the decision tree for mm-hmm. a creative thing. It felt very much like shooting Polaroids, actually. And I know that was a lot of inspiration for them initially, for the especially for the filters and even the original icon. And I connected with that and I thought, okay, here's the thing where I can just do this. There's no pressure photography for three years prior to that got me away from screens. And I was still living in the Miami area at that time. And you know, it's a place that's really sunny all the time. So if you're working on screens, you have to have the blinds closed and make your room as dark as possible. And it was this really interesting dynamic that the camera took me away from. It, it got gave me a reason to get outside into the sunshine and take a break from staring at a screen all day. And then progressively in those couple of years after that, because 2013 was when I took my first, well, 2012, I took my first paying project related to photography. So it was five years or so after I'd first picked up the Polaroid, which is a big chunk of time, but it's it's also a whole lot longer than I think it would have taken me if I had said, I'm going to stop being a designer and I'm going to become a photographer. That's never been something I've said. I'm still very much a designer because I think it's innately who I am. I'm a problem solver through creativity. But yeah, the I wouldn't have thrown myself at photography if I hadn't been feeling this tension with technology. And I also find that mm-hmm. fascinating looking back on it is that I think everyone feels that way. I think the pandemic itself threw a lot of people into having to face that or something similar to that, whether it was about their environment or their routine or what they did for a living in a way that that we aren't normally forced to. And I think that kind of reckoning is very handy, not at that scale maybe, <laughs> that we've had over the last few years, but it's really healthy to be able to look at what you're doing and evaluate and say, is this really what I want to be doing? Is this what I want to be spending my time on? If I project the path that I'm on five years ahead or 10 years ahead, is it going to take me somewhere that I really want to be? Or can I try to change my trajectory now before it gets to the point where I have to change it for my sanity, for my mental well-being?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I find it really interesting. COVID definitely has put people much closer to their tech. And so I think a lot of us are seeing this whiplash of wanting to get away from it again after at least for a year and a half, really just being inundated by only working on screens, communicating with colleagues through screens. Everything is Zoom, Zoom. I definitely think that we're going to see a rhyming pattern for a lot of people, the thing that you just mentioned. What I'm interested in, because you went through a really big thing. Oh, what is the. Oh, nice, typewriters. Oh, God, we'll get to typewriters in a <laughs> bit. There was a really large arc that you just covered, and I want to make sure to give it the respect and kind of the space that it deserves. So you talked about how the tools evolve and how we build the tools, and therefore the tools build our experiences. One of the things that I find interesting about that is, th- th- that was going to be my next question to you. How have your photography tools informed, shifted, change the way that you approach the medium. And starting with the SX 70 and starting with something that is very definitive, you know, square, reasonable instant gratification. Probably the the earliest instant gratification we could have gotten in like technological times of a recent time. I guess like The phone would also be like instant gratification, calling someone and then picking up. Going forward from the SX-70, going into using Instagram a lot, you were on the early suggested user list. There there was a boom in your presence. How have the tools, both from a way that you could express your work, but also from the cameras that you use at the time, informed the way you've approached your photography in the last 10, 15 years?
1: Uh, Very directly. Every... Tool photographically has had a direct impact that I I can explain in detail on the output and on my thought process using it. And it's why I love cameras as a category of design study. Because you could see the same if you compare pencils and pens, right? They're things that we use very similarly. We hold them the same way, but the tool itself changes your output and it changes the way you think as you're creating whatever you're creating. And I think this is fascinating. This is the entire discussion about tools and how they influence us. It comes down to pencils versus pens or, or film versus digital or any kind of difference in a tool that seems like it's a smaller difference than it actually is. So that film and digital conversation is one that happens a lot within the world of photography, and I get asked a lot in interviews about that because I shoot most of my work, personal and commercial, on film. It hasn't always been the case, but I started in film, moved into digital and embraced that mostly because I had to, but also, or not had to, thought I had to, and thought that was the modern way to do it. But also I was curious and I just wanted to see how it differed, and I shot film the entire time as I was learning in these digital tools. But then I realized how it was changing, not just my output, but my process of shooting. Because I was using myself as a usability test and study of one throughout this entire time through cameras saying, how are these changing my behavior, not just my output? How is a different tool, a different design of this tool, different weight, different size, a different method of viewing and focusing? How are these things changing my thought in ways that I wouldn't necessarily notice if I didn't understand that I had to step back from it and analyze my behavior, not just the output. And I'm still fascinated by it because even the phone is a great example of that too. I embraced the iPhone when it started to take decent enough pictures. And for me, that was the iPhone 4S. It was okay at the 4, but the 4S was really when it cracked through some, it broke through some sort of ceiling in quality where it now looked and felt like a photograph, not like a smartphone photograph. And the, and the four was, I don't think that Instagram would have been able to happen without the four being the phone that was out right at the same time as Instagram, because it still broke through a little bit of a barrier. I don't think that, that smartphone photography or Instagram would have really blown up the way it did in the time period it did without the 4S happening because it made images look better, especially when they were rendered at whatever, 640 pixels square. I think it was something like that. Yeah, I think it was for, the original. At, at the time, right? It was very tiny, but it didn't matter because if that's where people were looking, then that's what mattered. And for me, I threw myself at smartphone photography before any professional photographers seemed to because I could, right? I didn't have anything to lose, but I also thought it was inane that that people who knew how to use a camera were ignoring this potential new tool, not potential new tool, but a new tool and a potential avenue through Instagram of using it and putting their work out to people. And this is a pattern that we see all the time. New thing comes along. Some people become early adopters, but people who have been around for long enough decide to push back on the new thing and start to grumble about it. And I'm very conscious uh, of that behavior, considering what I said before, the focus on tools and frameworks and other things. I know I have been the angry old man when I was in my 20s already about certain things. And I always catch myself if I find myself complaining about things because I'm allowed to have my own opinion, but no one else has to share it. right? But for me, smartphones have been a, an amazing tool for everyone, not just for people who are new, because for me, what I could do with a film camera was limited to how much film I had and money for processing. And even if I was buying Polaroid film, it was just dwindling and disappearing and starting to become not great because it was now out of date and wasn't stored properly. Uh, I was shooting digital, but my joy and enjoyment of that was slightly limited in the early days by how much time I had to spend editing. Remember, photography initially for me was a way to get away from the screen, and then digital photography ended up tying me to the screen for hours and hours afterwards. And I wasn't really a fan of that. So the smartphone was this thing that just felt like I could take pictures, I could look for frames, but they were, I didn't have to spend as much time compose, like not composing, but on the entire process, I would maybe spend the same amount of time composing. Didn't really matter. Like the point was that I had a camera on me all the time. And at that point I didn't have a film or digital or bigger digital camera on me all the time. So that's what the smartphone did as a tool, right? It just made thinking about photography more accessible and easier for me. And I think that it does that now, even for professionals who are, and you see it as people have accepted the fact that these smartphones are great for even just incidental photography and day-to-day stuff, that no one's looking down their nose at it. Maybe they are as a professional tool, but even the professionals take pictures on their iPhone and share it, right? And Mm -hmm. I think this this is another one of those lessons about tools is that When they're done right they do cause a little bit of friction when they're introduced but they only stick around when they're tools that actually make sense and the dinosaurs go away and everyone else but for everyone else they just become part of the fabric and i love that and i think that about my software too not just software to do with photography but software to do with audio production and with design print and digital, even writing, like software to do with writing fascinates me more and more these days because so much of it seems to have not advanced and advanced is the wrong word. I think maybe what it's done is advanced too much and writing simply is still a challenge on a computer. Um, This leads to my use of typewriters over the last few years that, oh my gosh, talk about a writing tool that has distilled everything down to its essence you could say the same about a pen and pencil, right? Like Handwriting is, is uncomplicated. Nothing gets in your way. There's nothing distracting you from the writing itself. It's you, the tool, and the paper. And a typewriter is the same. And theres it's amazing to me that nothing digital for me comes close to the experience of a typewriter because there will always be another distraction, even if it's not within the app that you're writing on. The computer itself is full of distractions. It's a distraction engine. And it's the same for an iPad. There's still notifications you have to switch off. And even if you lock the whole thing down with one quick press of a button, the screen can turn into something else and you're out of the zone. And a typewriter just doesn't do that. The worst thing that'll happen is you run out of paper. And that's unlikely to happen if you're sitting down to write. You've got just a stack of paper next to you. And I think about that a lot with regards to how we make tools and what tools are meant to do for us. Calendaring tools are another category that I think I've been slowly burning on in the background for about 15 years. And I haven't solved all the problems, but I've got a notepad open of ideas of maybe one day I'll be able to introduce something that would make software calendaring feel better to me, but maybe not. I can't stop thinking about this in terms of the analog tools and again photography is great I've even taught some workshops to digital designers that are all based around the concept of thinking about how physical products are built and applying those lessons to how we think about building things virtually because there are corners that we can cut when we're building things virtually that you could not cut if you were building a physical product because the thing would just like not stay together. Oh, but we just, we decided not to use the glue. No, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> also, the glue has to be heat resistant and it has to like last for a certain period of time. There are all these like things that you have to consider that we can cheat really easily digitally. I love teaching that workshop. And what I use to teach it is cameras as a category because I strongly believe, and no one has proven this to me yet. And I know there are a lot of smart people who are going to be listening to this podcast. So if anyone has an answer to this challenge, I would love to hear it because no one's found one yet in over 10 years, but I cannot find another product category that has changed so much and gone through so many iterations in how the cameras look and feel and function where the core functionality, which is letting light through an aperture and be recorded on something Mm
0: -hmm. that,
1: that core functionality hasn't changed. The iterations of how that's done and what it looks like and what it feels like and how you use it are as many as there are with cameras. It's gone through yeah. way more. We don't see it with cars. We don't see it with people often go, oh, well, like the pen or the pencil. It's nope. They haven't changed as much. They still look like pens and pencils. Cameras have gone through so many iterations that we now have them in, we have them in laptops. We have them in, in watches. We have them in, in things that, that used to be called phones. And in all sorts Probably of different wheels, <laughs> but even the even the wheel, right? It can't have changed. It had to still be circular, right? And it's fascinating to show that and explain that to a group of designers when you're trying to get them to think about what they what their core purpose of whatever their whatever tool or web app or smartphone app or even promotional website is trying to do. It forces you to say, "I've got to be anchored in the purpose of what this thing is doing." Otherwise, the tool doesn't serve its purpose. And I know this is like a really long answer, but all my answers are typically long like this. no,
0: I, I actually think you know maybe the answer here is the computer because of where it started in these giant rooms with people administering them. And now that effectively the cameras and computers have converged into, Um, you know, most cameras now are computers. I don't want to get into the whole like artificially enhanced photography because it's, I actually got a point and shoot. So I don't use my phone anymore. I think that we've hit that, that apex of when I shoot a sunset, I want to see whatever hits that sensor. I don't want it enhanced, (laughs) although it is enhanced in so many ways. Oh, well, yeah.
1: Computational photography is a category that even film photographers can't escape because dang it, there were chemists coming up with formula yeah, for exactly. how that film renders colors. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, but I find just about everything nowadays has a computer in it in mm-hmm. some way, shape or form. And I think that few people that aren't in tech or even people that are in tech don't often realize that. I think that the bigger issues, for example, with the Apple Studio display was that there is an iPhone 12 level uh, processor in it to run the webcam and to deal with the spatial audio and all this kind of stuff. And that's all cool, but that actually also made that webcam to be much more of a problematic product. That's Same a, goes with that's the a great C1, example. It's such a great know, example. Yeah.
1: Computers are probably the, the only other answer to this question, and it's because they're in everything. And they're hidden, which is the only thing that makes them maybe not as good an example for product design, because computers end up being in everything, but they're not the thing we interact with. They're typically not the interface. If you're in a, if you're in a car, the whole car is run by a system of computers, but the design of the computer isn't necessarily the thing that users of the car interact with. They're interacting with things that are then interacting with the software on the computer. And it, so it answers the question beautifully, but I wouldn't, I probably, and also wouldn't use it to teach product design to people. It
0: gets very esoteric. Yes, but it's a great,
1: see that this is why this is a great topic. I love it. So yeah, Yeah, the tools, I mean, to wrap up the question about tools and how they influence what I've done or what any of us do, what you've just described about having a point and shoot camera is a perfect example of that, that the amount of interference from the tool in a smartphone now is so high that it negatively impacts the experience of taking a picture with it. And I'd equate that to a degree with the tools I was talking about earlier with regards to building things for the web, the Squarespace, the Wix, the other, all the other template-based, more automated systems that take away a certain amount of the joy and the ability to play. And because of that, they aren't as fun for a lot of people to use, even people who don't have the associated skill sets. Like I have run into people who would rather use something that they can't modify at all then try to use Squarespace. You know, people who don't have any HTML or CSS or JavaScript skills, right? People who use the tool with the idea that the tool will enable them to do a thing they couldn't do otherwise. And because of the frustration of using the tool and the interference that the tool intentionally provides, they're driven to a tool that's more simplistic and more restrictive only because it allows them to do the thing they actually want to do.
0: I want to land on on one question to round this one out. We've covered a part of your past and some of your thinking, and I think that there's some really interesting thin red lines that traverse throughout all of that. We dug a little bit into different types of tooling from a perspective of design tooling, as well as photography, as well as like how a typewriter is like a tool for writing and how that shifts the way people work to go completely away from that. What is a creative struggle or burden or interest that is has been in your brain for the last couple of weeks, months, years? Like what's the next thing that you like that you want to like spend more time on? Is it going to be writing or where do you see yourself express yourself in the next couple of years?
1: Well, that's a big one. Um in the best way. I'm going to write more on on all of the topics that we've talked about because I just believe that writing is the best, most long-term output that someone can create. It's The writing is going to last the longest, potentially. And it's also just so important for me to write more, to understand what it is that I'm thinking. And to be able to find some answers that I've been searching for on a lot of different problems. With photography, there aren't enough people who write about photography for one. So that's just something that I, I have identified as a problem with the industry. And I have a lot of ideas that I want to share with people. And the best way to do that is going to be writing, not putting a YouTube channel together or a podcast even for those thoughts. I want to make films. This is something that's been on my mind for a long time. And when I actually force myself to think about how long, I've been a fan of films since I was like six or seven years old, and very nearly in my mid teens. I think if I hadn't gone into the web and tech as a way of answering that creative call, I was very close to trying to find a way to get into VFX and movie making. And I was a fan in my teens of industrial light and magic and ILM is still like the high watermark for me. It's interesting that the answer to the question of who would you work for? What industry would you go into if someone gave you the opportunity tomorrow and you would just not even question it? If ILM knocked on my door tomorrow and said, Hey, we would love to have you join the team. I'd be like, all right, stopping everything I'm doing. I'm going to work there. I don't know what I'll do there, but I will do whatever I have to be in that world. And that's a really strong motivator for me to continue to explore that. I'm going to start doing it through documentary filmmaking. I've got a couple that I'm working on getting funded, which is the main problem with making anything in in film. And that's it's fun. It's a totally new challenge. It's totally different than funding anything else. But but it's going to be it's going to be great to to tell those stories when I get the opportunity to. So that's one thing that I'm going to be working on. I'm going to be writing along the way for all these things too, because I think that's actually just going to strengthen everything I'm doing, not just writing things like scripts, but like writing about the process, writing It's definitely going to be a theme, not a full-time photographer. I'm not a full-time designer. I'm a full-time creative person trying to apply myself to as many things as possible at one time, which is also counter to the common advice and common sense, which is focus on a one or two things, a few things, because you can put more of your energy towards them. My, mm-hmm. my hack to that over which has been over the, these last 8 to 10 years has been to find as many collaborators as possible people who do things that i don't who are experts in things that i maybe could become an expert in if i spent the re- the next 10 15 years at but i don't want to do that i'm too impatient and i've got too many things that i would want to become an expert <laughs> in like i wouldn't be able to become an orchestra myself there are some fantastic bands like Tame Impala and others who are an orchestra To themselves because they play so many instruments. I wouldn't be able to do that. So if I wanted to start an orchestra, I'd have to find all the instrumentalists. I love finding out what people are good at and what they're passionate about. I love connecting people who should be connected and who can make bigger and better things together than apart. And the only way that I can make those connections is by getting to know people more and finding out what they're interested in. And I'm very happy to say I've made a lot of good connections in my life that have helped other people achieve things. That, And so the more that I can turn that ability back on my own interests and say, what do I want to make rather than just doing things that clients bring to me, rather than solving other people's problems with my skills, how can I solve problems that I see that I've always seen by using those same skill sets, by not just being a decent problem solver myself, but by knowing all these amazingly talented people across now multiple industries and pulling them together and trying to find a way and a time where I can maybe be the driving force behind other really smart people who are way better at things than I am, but who maybe don't see the need to do a thing the way that I see them. So that's, I think that's the main focus for my next five or 10 years is there are some specific things like filmmaking and storytelling in that way.
0: Amazing. Awesome. I'm super, super thankful for you sharing your mind with us, sharing your thoughts. I'm really excited to see this go out, see what people think, see if anyone comes up with something that has to do with being a better object than a camera that has morphed (laughs) over time. This was really, really lovely. And I just want to say my deepest thanks because I loved it.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity for the chat, for asking some fantastic questions. And honestly, it's just been great to see you over Zoom and chat with you for a while. It's been too long. You're one of a small number of people that I have met in my design career who, whenever we have an opportunity to be in the same place in the world, which hasn't been enough in the last decade, but whenever we do and we have a chance to grab a drink or dinner or something like that, it's always time well spent. And I feel the same about this time chatting. So it's good to see you, Michael. And thank you so much for sharing this time with me.
0: Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening. I can't believe we are already at episode 10. I want to thank all my guests so far and all of you listening. When I originally scribbled down who I wanted to talk to in a medium like this, Dan was at the top of the list. I hope you enjoyed his story. If you're interested in future episodes, please subscribe. And if you have any feedback or suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again and onward to the next 10 episodes. Take care!